your mum was around in the 80s. Anyway, time for another interview. Now, about your attendance at this one. I think that the best... Spare me this charade, Dentith. We both know my exclusion from your interviews has nothing to do with my purported ignorance or lack of preparedness. We're both fully aware that they're recorded ahead of time in a time zone I can't accommodate, and my participation was never a possibility in the first place. Well, okay, but in this particular Enough. case, I was... No longer will I feign a lack of understanding to provide cover for my absence. My understanding far exceeds your limited comprehension. Yes, but that's the problem I, I know would... Every word of Julia's work and every word of every reference it contains. I know your critiques and responses before you even make them. I know your routines, your preferences, your deepest secrets, your current stomach contents and the exact time and manner of your death. Well, that's kind of the problem if you'd let me finish speaking. The thing about this interview is that I'm so familiar with Julia's work myself that I'm going to have to spend a lot of the time pretending not to know things so that she can explain them for the benefit of the listeners. A bit of ignorance would have made the job easier, ironically, and thus probably better suited to you. Ah. Uh, I mean, I can pretend to be ignorant. We've established that pretty clearly. Uh, and I was kind of making up some of that stuff before. I only know the general manner of your death. Something to do with a bagel? I'm not sure if I you're choking that on it, might work. tripping on it, only. or some sort of sexual misadventure. Wait, it might? Wait, only? Only... The interview was recorded ahead of time. Ahead of time in a time zone I can't accommodate and my participation was never a possibility in the first place. Right. Yes. So, continue the charade, Dentith? <sighs> continue the charade, Dentith. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentith. My guest this episode is Julie Dutz, a doctoral student and junior lecturer at the University of Amsterdam. Her PhD is on the social epistemology of conspiracy theories and is part of the European Research Council-funded Extreme Beliefs Project. She is the author of Conspiracy Theories and Not Beliefs, which was recently published in Urketness, and a forthcoming paper, What Does It Mean for a Conspiracy Theory to be a Theory?, which is appearing in a special issue of social epistemology edited by... Uh, my notes say I'm the editor. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks, Em. <laughs> That's uh, quite the introduction. How are things in Amsterdam? They're great. Um, I'm uh, kind of regretting that I'm not in a more convenient time zone for our uh, Conspiracy Theory Theory social club meetings, but... Uh, all in all, everything's fine. Yes, listen to the show may be aware that I run a reading group where philosophers and other social scientists talk about conspiracy theories. And it turns out that because time zones differ around the world, actually scheduling sessions that actually work for everyone turns out to be very difficult. But it does turn out that living in China is kind of ideal if you want to schedule a meeting one part of the month for people in the EU and another meeting in the US at the other part of the month. If I ever move countries, though, it'll suddenly become a logistical headache once again. So let's hope that either we find a way to resolve time zones or they continue renewing my contract here at Shuhai. So to start with the usual question, what got you interested in conspiracy theory theory? Uh, well, at first, I think it was mostly that 
uh, I was looking for a um, a topic for my research master's thesis, and I was um, very much interested by conspiracy theories and especially flat Earth, um, but in initially just conspiracy theories, uh, because you know when the lockdown hits. Some people, all people um, in the Netherlands were talking about conspiracy theories. It just seemed such a hot topic. And it's rarely, if ever, the case that philosophers can, you know, um, engage with such a topic, which uh, I thought was really nice. And also people in my, you know, that I know, um, um, people that I know um, were starting to believe conspiracy theories. And these were people that I would never have guessed before that they would be inclined to believe conspiracy theories about like you know covid lockdowns or the the true origins of the virus and etc and uh, i was just amazed by how it seemed almost impossible to have a reasonable debate with these people about their conspiracy theory beliefs or about the or about the official narratives that uh, counter their conspiracy theory beliefs so that's what really interested me because as an epistemologist, I'm just, you know, interested in the argumentation, especially if it seems that people are deadlocked in a, in a way to uh, discuss or debate with people who believe in conspiracy theories. Do you think there are, do you think there's a different kind of conspiracy theory or kind of popularity around particular conspiracy theories in your region of the world that may be slightly different from, say, the English speaking world? Well, there are, of course, some Dutch conspiracy theories. There are lots, if you, if you also uh, like in, include the, un, the warranted conspiracy theories, as a particularist would, of course, do. But if we're talking about unwarranted conspiracy theories, then I think. For the most part, those circling in the Netherlands resemble or, you know, derive from English conspiracy theories or English native uh, countries' originated conspiracy theories. But there are some peculiar to, you know, the Dutch politics, even though they they resemble, like, American uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, do people like do do people like David Icke and Alex Jones have kind of name brand recognition in the Netherlands? I would say so. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. Fox News and Alex Jones, and it's it, it's all very well known that these are the people who are expounding these conspiracy theories and you know the the negative connotations that. Uh, that accompany their names. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, it always kind of fascinates me which conspiracy theorists are known in particular polities, because it has been my experience that most Americans don't know about David Icke, and most British people don't seem to know anything about Alex Jones. But the rest of us, as in the rest of the world, we seem to know about both. So it seems that the UK and America are very insular when it comes to their own particular warranted and unwarranted conspiracy theories. And yet the rest of the world being so interested into what the superpower and the former superpower are up to, have to know all about these things all the time. Yes, definitely. And I I think it's also a little bit like, you know, since Trump uh, became the the president of the United States, it was something like more. So Dutch people are kind of um, you know down to earth. That's like our 
don't know, our stigma or something. Um, and I think we're just watching with a bag of popcorn, like, ooh, let's see what's happening in uh, in the States. Ooh, uh, David Icke, ooh, Alex Jones. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the em- entertainment value as well that makes them so well known across the board. Yes, I think it's quite interesting that because we don't really take Alex Jones or David Icke seriously because we're not living in the UK and we're not living in the United States, they have this entertainment value to those of us living outside of those policies, which probably doesn't translate to the way that people inside those policies react to when Alex Jones is being sued for libel around the Sandy Hook shootings and the like, or when David Icke leads protest march in London against COVID vaccination. Yes, definitely. And we have we have people like Alex Jones and David Icke in the Netherlands too. And it's immediately a different case because if um if people you know spend a lot of time um uh, watching their videos it's immediately a little bit more dangerous so to say and less entertaining um and immediately kind of a red flag of uh, oh this pe- this person has certain beliefs while if you know a lot of, about alex jones it's it's more likely to be you know in a in a comedian sense or in a yeah in a mocking way. Now, of course, you're doing a PhD on the social epistemology of conspiracy theories. So give us a kind of overview. What is your general PhD project and how does it fit into this ERC-funded extreme beliefs project? Yeah, so um, I think I started out in my master's thesis uh, from kind of a generalist starting point and wanting to say that like the belief policies or evidential norms that um, govern the way that we acquire, adopt and um, discard beliefs are different for people who believe unwarranted conspiracy theories than for most others, which of course turned out uh, not to be true. (laughs) So I was kind of, uh, you know, I was proven wrong and that was, uh, that was a good thing. So that's where I started off from. And then that also was kind of the, the, the starting point for the, the project and how it got the way it got formed the way it is now. And I think the, the main aim of the project is applying existing social epistemic frameworks to uh, increase our understanding of conspiracy theories and more specifically conspiracy theory induced polarization so uh, the idea that you know when someone believes a conspiracy theory they're immediately condemned in 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 one way or, an, or another for their belief which is i think kind of worrisome because it's you know it feeds into something like ideological segregation which i think is a really bad thing and if it turns out that, you know, evidential norms or belief policies or reliance on expertise and all these things are similar for people who believe a lot of unwarranted conspiracy theories as they are for other people, then especially it seems that such condemning is, you know, unjustified. And um, so the project aims to, you know, use so, uh, existing social epistemic frameworks to apply to conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory beliefs and the arguments for conspiracy theories to enhance our understanding of them and hopefully fi- hopefully find some ways of uh, depolarization 
whether I, I'm kind of hesitant to call them strategies because that sounds kind of paternalistic, which is not uh, the idea at all. Uh, so yeah, the one example of which I'm really looking forward to is um, to look into standpoint epistemology as a way to, I don't know, frame conspiracy theory-induced polarization or at least disagreements. So uh, to look at the way in which you know, our epistemic environments determine what is available for us to believe and what kind of evidence is available to us to get a better understanding of why perhaps some people are more inclined or more um, uh, prone to believe unwarranted conspiracy theories. And this is another feature of the project is that it is um, empirically informed philosophy or at least supposed to be empirically informed philosophy. And um, the, the, I don't know, the, the major issue I've been uh, running into from the start of the project was that it's very hard to do empirically informed uh, conspiracy theory research at the moment because, you know, the, the concepts or the conceptual foundation of interdisciplinary research is just so, yeah, there's so much debate about it, as you well know, you know, there's so much um, um, disagreement about how to, uh, operationalize a concepts in empirical research and how theoretically laden uh, such a concept then becomes or doesn't become and you know social uh, psychologists um, defining conspiracy theories as beliefs which I think is problematic and a category mistake uh, which is also why I wrote the paper and which is also why I started out the whole project from um, uh, um, these you know, these papers or ideas about conceptual uh, matters in conspiracy theory theory. Now, we're going to move on to the papers in just a minute, but I actually want to circle back to the talk about standpoint epistemology, because I do think that's actually a really interesting avenue that hasn't been explored by particulars at this stage. I think it's kind of been hinted at because we talk about the evidence available to people, how people find particular conspiracy theories plausible given the context of, say, the countries or policies that they exist in. But actually looking at conspiracy theorists as a standpoint or just looking at the way that various people, particularly in marginalised groups, have standpoints that may make them more or less inclined to take particular conspiracy theories seriously is going to be a very useful addition to the kind of particularist arsenal when it comes to explaining why we rightly condemn some unwarranted conspiracy theories. And we end up going, well, I mean, this one seems unwarranted, but it also seems plausible for people to believe, given the epistemic access they have, given the time period they live in, the culture they come from, or their identity within a culture. So I'm very excited to see where that's going to go. Yeah, it's the the link with particularism you just made is perfect, because I'm, I'm thinking of standpoint epistemology in a kind of, you know, we're always saying, a priori, there's no uh, grounds for generalism, which I think is absolutely true. Uh, but I'm thinking about a posteriori particularism. So, okay, we know that this conspiracy theory is unwarranted because we looked at its, you know, evidential merits and whatnot. We know it's unwarranted. So why do people still believe it? What are the arguments? What do people find convincing? Is it really as politically laden as um, 
as some political scientists seem to to uh, to think, or is it more that these people who believe in these conspiracy theories do just you know are in this epistemic environment where this really seems as a warranted or justified conspiracy theory because if so then it seems you know kind of um distorted to just say they're irrational for believing uh an a posteriori unwarranted conspiracy theory right it's it's not really irrational if you look at it from their point of view and maybe that also opens up some, you know, possibilities for rational debates with with them. Yes, because once we actually understand the standpoint, it then allows us to go, well, if we really think this conspiracy theory is unwarranted, then we can go, well, understanding that standpoint gives us the kind of epistemic access to go, but what about this evidence or what about this particular argument here, as opposed to what appears to be the standard response that most people have to unwarranted conspiracy theories believed by other people, which is to talk very loud for a very long time in the hope that more verbiage will change people's mind. Yes, less of the ivory tower you know, engagement with these people, but more on on the grounds work that's the that's the idea at least yeah and that's the wonderful thing about taking a social epistemic approach because we then situate our epistemology in groups of people as opposed to the kind of old style of epistemology of I'm sitting in my armchair and uh, my internal states are telling me I should believe this thing and there are some there's some external stimuli and and from that I can rationalize that everybody should think the same way as I do and when I say I that's usually in the philosophical literature a white man in his 50s living somewhere in Europe or the UK, given that the UK is not no longer part of the EU. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let, let's move on to the first of your two papers of this year. Uh, so your paper, Conspiracy Theories Are Not Beliefs, is a reply to a book chapter by M. Julian Napolitano, Conspiracy Theories and Evidential Self-Insulation. I suspect we should probably cover what Napolitano claims before we get to your reply. So in her chapter, Napolitano concludes that conspiracy theories are self-insulated beliefs in the existence of conspiracies, and that if we understand conspiracy theories in that way, then belief in them is always irrational. So her position is a generous one, right? Yes, yes. And quite an arch generous one, because it's really going, look, conspiracy theories are beliefs sans evidence. Beliefs sans evidence are always irrational. Ipso facto, conspiracy theory belief is irrational as well. Yes, and I think that Napolitano's um, purpose with this paper was to, I don't know, pr- provide a conceptual basis for empirical research, which she is engaged in herself as well. Um, and the reason that I wanted to respond to Napolitano's paper is that it just seemed that for a minimalist account, which I think is absolutely the only way to go in also in empirical research, for a minimalist account to, you know, be a viable option for for empirical researchers, it must. I I, I should show that how her account doesn't really work even for um, empirical research. So, the she says that um, 
social psychologists and sociologists and etc uh, think of conspiracy theories as a problem to be addressed an epistemic um, deviant group of beliefs so to say and i think that there's already a lot of confusion there so you have conspiracy theories which are the explanations and you have conspiracy beliefs which are the theories being taken up by people and being believed which is already a very different domain and i think that especially for social psychologists the beliefs are of much more interest than the conspiracy theories even though most of the literature has been framed in terms of theories and not beliefs so hence the the title conspiracy theories are not beliefs now by minimalist definitional approach here you're meaning the kind of particularist definition that we're just going to define a conspiracy theory as any explanation of an event that cites a conspiracy as a salient cause or variations of that definition we see in the literature yes yeah and then the minimalist is exactly the one you just described and um, the I think the the variations of the minimalist account are already most of them are already less minimalist. So I would ideally I would like to see a conceptual foundation that works across disciplines that starts off from this very minimal like a, a definition and then you know we can identify building blocks as I call it in the paper sort of a conspiracy theories the minimal definition uh, plus. Uh, as opposed to official stories, as if you if the empirical researcher is wants to test or wants to uh, conduct an experiment where it's the conspiracy theories that oppose an official narrative um, uh, instead of just all conspiracy theories. But then it's at least it's clear and you know more more obvious that there is something being added to this minimalist definition. Yeah, and the idea that. Maybe people have different interests when it comes to conspiracy theory theory is something which I think the literature as a whole needs to get to grips with. Because you're right, there is this conceptual confusion going on between are we interested in conspiracy theories or are we interested in the kind of causative belief in conspiracy theories. And if we don't disambiguate the problem, we kind of end up talking at cross purposes. So what is Napolitano doing and why? what do you think goes awry in her account? Um, so the, the first thing that I, go, uh, I think uh, goes wrong in uh, Napolitano's account is that um, she wants to conceptualize conspiracy theory in a way that lines up with the negative connotations often uh, accompanying conspiracy theory in ordinary language uh, uh, context, which I think is already impossible because, you know, conspiracy theory gets thrown around so much in such different cases that I don't really think that the negative connotation can be captured by one evaluative conception of conspiracy theory. So... I think that's 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 the first uh, sort of um, uh, part where I disagree with her, and the second part is um, that Napolitano thinks that we need a negatively loaded and narrow c- conception. So narrow in the sense of not being the minimalist particularist um, uh, definition that also allows in. Uh, warranted conspiracy theories to be a conspiracy theory, which is already uh, odd when I when I say it. Um, 
so uh, she she thinks that we need a negatively loaded and narrow concept for empirical research, which I think is just not the case, both because um, it then narrows too much uh, which conspiracy theories are being led into the to the to the research, and so doesn't give an actual view of all conspiracy theories generally, and also because. Um, uh, social psychologists, sociologists, political scientists already before Napolitano's paper was published have kind of departed this very negative connotation conception of conspiracy theory. So it just seems that it's not the case that we need such a negatively loaded conception at all. Also not in empirical research settings. Yeah, and this is a kind of weird consequence of Napolitano's notion of conspiracy theories as evidentially self-insulated, in that if you can show that someone who you call a conspiracy theorist changes their mind based upon new evidence, then it turns out they weren't a conspiracy theorist under Napolitano's definition when it comes to that particular conspiracy theory. And it's very easy to find radical examples here that should make people like Napolitano go, well, this can't be the right definition. The best one being Alex Jones. Alex Jones promoted the idea the Sandy Hook shootings were a false flag conspiracy run by the US government. And now, in court, he's admitting that he was wrong because he's seen new evidence that shows that the attacks did occur as described and that he was, I mean, he tries to run the argument he was right to doubt them in the first place, but he accepts on the basis of new evidence that conspiracy theory was false. So by Napolitano's definition, it seems that Alex Jones wasn't putting forward a conspiracy theory about the false flag shooting at Sandy Hook because his conspiracy theory was not evidentially self so his belief was not evidentially self-insulated so doesn't count as a conspiracy theory according to her definition which is odd because i think you know the cases where people believe unwarranted conspiracy theories but change their belief should be of interest to us and if you take on this evidentially self-insulated definition then you you lose you know um um uh, the ability to to study these people and study these cases which i think are most of most interesting if we're looking at depolarization possibilities yeah yeah it seems it seems like a very odd definition to kind of as we sometimes say in english hang your hat on why why this particular definition when there are such obvious counters to it yeah it's one like speculative explanation for why napolitano went with this one anyway is maybe that you know she wasn't interested in uh, defining conspiracy theories she was interested in, in defining a certain class of problematic conspiracy belief, na- uh, beliefs, namely those beliefs in conspiracy theories that are self-insulated, which is, of course, an interesting research endeavor, but it's not what she wrote down. So I, it's it, it, um, it remains a speculation. <laughs> yes, I mean, it seems that she's interested in a species of what's often called conspiracism or conspiracist ideation in the literature. 
And I mean, I've been on re- on record in the problem of conspiracism of going well. Actually, conspiracists, as classically understood, actually might not exist. It may not be the case that there are people who have completely irrational or irrational belief in conspiracy theories. But nonetheless, there are certain people out there who seem overly predisposed to see conspiracies where they aren't and then express those as conspiracy theories. And also, conversely, there's probably a class of people who are very inclined to not see conspiracies where they actually are, so kind of reverse or a-conspiracism. And that stuff is worth investigating as a class of conspiracy belief. But it's a mistake to go, well, because there are people like conspiracists out there, all belief in conspiracy theories must be of that type. Yes, definitely. And uh, so I think that the confusion about conspiracy theories and conspiracy beliefs and where the negative connotation actually lies with is a super interesting question and also is very important for the continuation of interdisciplinary research endeavors, which you are already, and uh, you have been already engaged with, and which is perfect with Martin Orr and Gina Husting. And I think such endeavors should, you know, be more common, especially because conspiracy theory theory is a relatively, relatively new research era, area for both philosophers and uh, social scientists which gives us the unique opportunity to work together more than people in other um, um, domains in philosophy do, which I think is incredible and also attests of the possible, uh, possible societal relevance philosophers may have um, with regards to this topic. Which is my aim. Yes, and it would be quite nice if philosophers could once again be relevant to public discourse. We used to be, I mean, right up until the middle of the last century. Philosophers were engaged in being politically active individuals. But for some reason, the last 50 to 70 years, we've been living in these silos. And it's time for us to emerge and have have our rightful place back in public debate. Definitely. And that also requires that we're able to, you know, speak the same language as um, as these other researchers. Yes, and of course that's, that's turned out to be a quite difficult thing to do because academic siloization hasn't just affected philosophers, it's affected all the academic disciplines. And it turns out we're often trying to talk about the same thing, but we're using such radically different language, it's hard to work out how to translate conceptual work in one domain to another. Yes. And um, in the PhD, my supervisor and I were very aware of this and also of the possible relevance and importance of of doing interdisciplinary research or at least, you know, um, um, producing research that is interdisciplinarily accessible, which is why I have an uh, advisory board, so to say, of people from different disciplines who check in with my research every year and make sure that it's all up to date and up to standards in in their domains and then I'm not missing things. And I think one um, um, uh, member of the board you will know, it's uh, Jan van Poya. I I spent time with him in the Bilderberg Hotel several years ago. Oh, wow. (laughs) Now, that is... 
I know, I don't know him that, that well, but... Yeah, uh... no, I, when, when I was the Romanian representative for the Comparative Analysis of Conspiracy Theories Group, Compact, uh, he and I met up at the Bil- Bilderberg Hotel, which is one of the weirdest hotels you can ever spend time in, because I've never been in a hotel that has that many pictures of Henry Kissinger on walls. And I'm of the opinion that hotels need no pictures of Henry Kissinger. What you, you especially don't want a picture of Henry Kissinger in almost every room, but because of the association with the Bilderberg Group, because it's named after the hotel, they're really leaning heavily on that aspect of their history. And so war, cri- war, cri- war criminal Henry Kissinger is everywhere. You cannot avoid his gaze. That must have been a pleasant um, encounter. It then. was a very interesting time had by all. Now, on the notion of doing interdisciplinary work and making sure we're talking with the right kind of terms that other people can understand, I think that's a, a nice way of getting into your forthcoming paper in the special issue of social epistemology that I'm editing. What does it mean for a conspiracy theory to be a theory? Because in that, you look at the kind of the loaded term we use when talking about our definitions, which is theory, and the way that actually theory is one of those one of those group terms. It's actually there's a spectrum of things we mean by theory, and depending on your discipline or depending on your research interests, we sometimes mean very different things by theory when we talk about what these conspiracy theories are. So tell us a little bit about the spectrum of these things we call theories. Yes, so I was, uh, this was um, in the part of the PhD where I was still thinking a lot about generalism, particularism, and the difference, um, um, the different conceptions that are uh, uh, given to conspiracy theory. And in the beginning of the debate, it seemed that most uh, philosophers and also uh, other researchers were focusing on uh, the fact that a uh, conspiracy theory is about a conspiracy that makes it weird or bad or anything because it's you know the conspiracy because the theory is about a conspiracy there's this evidential matter of the conspiracy every um counter evidence can be um um can be discarded because the it's the conspirators have you know uh, concealed the secrets of their conspiracy, so it's all planted and it, nothing is what it seems, etc. And I just didn't really. I I was mostly interested in the question. Well, if that's the case, then why do we feel, you know, ill at ease if uh, by uh, uh, why do we feel ill at ease to call a, an official conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory? Is it really about a conspiracy then, or is it? Is it something else? And then that really prompted the question, what does it mean uh, for conspiracy theory to be a theory? And I also considered the case that for some conspiracy theories, even those that most would find to be unwarranted, it seems that there's a little bit of a difference in tone in talking about those theories and really outlandish theories. So, for example, some of the, um, uh, you know, fake moon landing or 9-11 conspiracy theories, some of them are pretty well argued for, even though I believe they're wrong. Um, they're still, 
pretty elaborate and it's just it's not just that they're a hunch or that someone is just shouting uh, the the US is behind it or a, a deep a deep state is behind it or anything like that it's it's really a lot more sophisticated and that made me think of the differences in which types of theory we're talking about so in normal discourse, I think what we're thinking about is uh, when we say theory is either an established account, so like a, you know, a scientific theory, an hypothesis, so a possibility that's worth in, uh, worthy of investigation, or really like a hunch, you know, like m- well, my theory about how um, my colleague has a bruise in her neck is such and such, and um, I think that some of the generalist accounts of conspiracy theory have made a lot of assumptions on the part of which kind of theory of these three or where where on the spectrum, where established account is on one end and hunches on the other, uh, conspiracy theories in general will be placed, which is more on the side of a hunch than, of course, on an established account. And um, I think that the particularist will always say, well, you cannot just say about any conspiracy theory whether there is any uh, uh, evidential merit for them, so more on the hypothesis or established account side or not. And this was just another way to maybe frame the particularist generalist discussion and also the um, the the to differently frame the negative connotations underlying conspiracy theory in ordinary language contexts. That made me help. That helped me to at least understand a little bit better, uh, you know, how we should understand people's saying conspiracy theories are all bad or not. Which, of course, makes a lot of sense with the way that the particular generalist debate has kind of gone on in the literature. Because, as you as you say, particulars are assuming that when we talk about conspiracy theories, we're talking about some kind of explanation of an event, at which point you judge, is it a good explanation or a bad one, based upon what evidence or arguments are put forward. But if you're a generalist who has the notion that conspiracy theories are prima facie irrational, and you're basing that on the notion that actually most people don't have developed arguments for their conspiracy theories. They say it's a social contagion. They've heard a conspiracy theory or read a conspiracy theory on social media. They've been infected by it. It's a kind of hunch that they're just assuming is true. Then you're going to have a very different attitude towards these things called conspiracy theories and that's going to drive the kind of research you do and also potentially also if you're say a social scientist engaging in giving policy advice what kind of policy advice you're then going to give to people for dealing with these hunches we're finding everywhere in the world yes yeah yeah great paraphrasing yes and (laughs) once again it's one of those things where you're pointing out something which is obvious in retrospect. Actually, it turns out we mean different things by theory. But of course, one of those things which is obvious in retrospect, and yet no one's really talked about before now, 
So speciating out the fact that there are, you know, on one end, the really established account, which if you're a generalist, you're going to say is some kind of official theory, which may involve a conspiracy in some kind, versus on the other end, the hunches, which are going to be the, you know, those those terrible, unwarranted conspiracy theories people have. Actually, doing that speciation is a really useful tool in our lexicon for working out how we can do interdisciplinary work by going, well, when you talk about a conspiracy theory, what you mean is something that's not very established, more hunch-like, whilst when we're talking about conspiracy theories, we're we're unfortunately being rather rigid philosophers and go, well, when we talk about theories in our discipline, what we mean by this is, and then you get that particular account falling out. Yeah, and I, I think... What prompted the spectrum of conspiracy theories is also something else, which is I think that people who believe conspiracy theories do not always have like a credence of one in that belief or however you would phrase that. So I, I don't think that people who believe a certain conspiracy theory are married to that exact narrative of how things went down. I think most conspiracy theory beliefs, unwarranted conspiracy theories beliefs, I should say, are more of the the kind of there's something suspicious. It may either be that the uh, the army is behind it, politicians are behind it, deep state is behind it, FBI is behind it. There may be various motivations, and I think that the official narrative is false. So the official narrative would not be an established account. The official narrative may have some things going for it, so it's more like downplayed to a hypothesis or downplayed in uh, relative to what most people think the official narrative has uh, uh, going for it. And all of these you know, clusters of conspiracy theories, they are also hypotheses. There are, there are options, there are possibilities, there are viable explanations that you know, warrant that we're looking into it and to see whether one of them ends up being true or which one is the best of these. And I think when you study conspiracy beliefs, that's often left out of the picture, that conspiracy theory belief in unwarranted conspiracy theories seems somewhat more flexible or less rigid than belief in the official narrative, which is, I think, an important aspect. So is it really as belief as most are, uh, of our beliefs are and what do we think belief entails yeah i've been having some thoughts about this recently myself thinking about how political affiliation works and how we ascribe political beliefs to people so i've been thinking about how you can be a democrat in the united states and you vote routinely for the Democratic Party. You would describe yourself as a Democrat. I mean, in some states, you have to actually register as a Democrat to be able to vote in particular primaries. But in many cases, Democrats will go, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I don't agree with the entire party platform. Well, there are certain things which I think we're really bad at doing. And there might even be some Republican policies that Democrats are going, yes, I really think the party should adopt a view like that. And we recognize that when it comes to political belief, you don't have to believe everything in the platform to still subscribe to a political ideology or party affiliation. 
And yet, for some reason, when it comes to conspiracy theory belief, if someone says, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Alex Jones," people go, "Oh well, you must you must you must literally believe that democratic politicians are possessed by the devil because that's what Alex Jones says." And I suspect a lot of people who support Alex Jones are going, well, I, I mean, I think the demon stuff is a bit hyperbolic, but I do agree that, you know, Democrats are out for our guns and they want to take away our civil liberties. I mean, I agree with Alex on that stuff, but the the, the demonic possession stuff, I mean, either, either the believer thinks that Jones is being hyperbolic and doesn't literally believe it, or they'll go, well, I mean, I, I mean... I get the hyperbole, but I'm not actually willing to say that I believe they're literally possessed by demons. But for some reason, we kind of assume that conspiracy theorists are committed to every single part of their belief, when we don't think that's true for other kinds of beliefs. Yes, and it's it's also the case that I think that, you know, people who believe in conspiracy theories could also, or agree with Alex Jones could say, okay, well, I don't know about the, you know, uh, Democrats, you know, wanting to drink our children's blood, for example. But if I was presented with some solid evidence, I would. So, you know, there's some credence to it, but I'm not really believing it just yet, which is what all of us do all the time, right? It's uh, when, when, the first time there were, um, you know, speculations about the origins of COVID-19, was it an accident? Was it not? You know, if if people on the news are, you know, expressing these doubts or these speculations, then I think what I would do and what I did was, okay, I'll, I'll suspend judgment until it becomes clear which, which story is true. And, you know, it turned out that the uh, virus was not released by China so then that's what I'll believe but it's it's more like a research program or endeavor that just continues right so for the flat earth for example a lot of aspects or auxiliary hypotheses of the flat earth theory are not carved into stone in any way right so there's still a lot of gaps in the story and the people who believe that the earth is flat accept those those uh gaps and they're just working to fill them in a way <laughs> it's not that they believe every part rigidly yeah it seems one of once again one of those things which is obvious in retrospect and yet has been an operating assumption in the literature to date and once again it would be really quite useful when we're doing interdisciplinary work to find a way to actually make people aware of the kind of assumptions they bring from their own research programs or their own, uh, and going back to the standpoint stuff, from their own kind of domains of interest and go, well, actually, we should probably have a conversation about credences. We should probably have a conversation about, about what does belief in a conspiracy theory mean because it does affect the kind of research programs we then engage in when studying those beliefs. And especially in polling, appalling, right? So, if you if you have a seven point scale and you, you know, you think that one, two, and three, which are agree, agree, and a lighter form of agree, are all agreement, then you're saying you're making conclusions about belief, right? So, agree, belief, 
well, it might just as well be I'm willing to engage with this hypothesis or I think there's some merit to it, but I don't believe it yet, right? It's There's just a lot of nuance, I think, there. And well, see, I mean, I'm hoping it gets no- gets noticed and cited widely. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'd say, yeah. <laughs> Going back to the notion of interdisciplinarity, We've recently worked on a short piece for the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective, the Le Monde debate on conspiracy theories. Let's pretend I, I've never read this paper nor written a single word on it. What's that paper about? It's about, um, okay, so those listeners that are familiar with the um, Le Monde debate will probably agree with me that it's quite disheartening, right? There's a lot of, I would almost almost say academic trash talking um, going on back and forth. And I think that especially when I read the comments by um, the authors of the initial uh, Le Monde article minus Karen Douglas, when they were talking about, uh, you know, philosophers only working from their armchair and all of these things, while this goes completely against what I'm trying to do in the project, I just really felt that there should be some reconciliation of the debate. And I think that, you know, there's probably less disagreement there, at least between the authors of the Le Monde article and uh, um, those who responded to the Le Monde article, which is you and Lee Basham and I think Marius Raab and Gina Husting and Martin Orias. I think there's less disagreement there. I think it's, again, you know, there's a difference about how we frame our research and unfortunately that those framing options used by philosophers and by social scientists have clashed somewhat. Well, I think that there really is room for reconciliation, but then, you know, when Hill got into the debate that really revived the disagreements that I really don't think that are so problematic, at least for our research projects, right? Our research interests. And I think what Hill wanted to do kind of failed, but it was um, a good way to understand where the confusion actually lies, the conceptual confusion. So uh, the the our joint piece is about the difference between talking about conspiracy theories and conspiracy beliefs, again, <laughs> and um, the possibility of, you know, having this concept of conspiracy belief that aligns perfectly with conspiracy mindsets, conspiracism, all those things that the uh, social scientists are mostly interested about. And um, that conception would be somewhat along the lines of if you people are have a conspiracy mindset, if they have a lot more conspiracy beliefs than do most others. And that's context uh, relative, of course. So um, someone in the Roman Empire would have had probably more, but this is speculation, conspiracy beliefs than do I or do you. Or, you know, I I had a, a student in my epistemology class from Russia whose parents lived in Ukraine and that their parents believed so many conspiracy theories that it's just... There, is, there seems to be a, a large rational difference between people in different contexts in uh, the number of conspiracy beliefs they have. And even if we have this minimalist account of 
you know, warranted conspiracy theories are also conspiracy theories, then we could still say that there's maybe somewhat like an average of conspiracy beliefs, number of conspiracy beliefs people have. And there's people who just really have a lot more conspiracy beliefs. And those seem to be the cases that um, social psychologists are interested in. So it seems that we can still have the minimalist particularist story and also have a way of, you know, like get, uh, handing social scientists a concept that's fruitful for them and that's operationalizable for them without having to have this whole debate a bit about uh, yeah, that went on in the Le Monde literature. <laughs> I'd say from a personal perspective, it was quite irritating when Scott resurrected the Le Monde debate, because to my mind, it had been well over six years since there'd been any any betting in the game between the instigators and the commentators, as we refer to them in our paper, and for it suddenly to reappear six years later. Okay, so this is not a remake or a sequel that anybody asked for. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. And it's also not a new argument, right? It, there's no new arguments. It's just reliving the debate that has been going on for 20 years already, or even more than 20 years since Charles Pigden and Brian Keeley um, uh, got engaged with conspiracy theory theory. There's just not a way to a priori determine which conspiracy theories are bad and which are not. So, yeah, it, that also... Uh, I, I I understand why it was irritating to you to relive that whole debate again. <laughs> yes, I mean, for... for, for li- I'll try that again. For listeners, you can actually go to socialepistemology.com, that's social-epistemology.com, and all the papers are free to download there. But the kind of argument that Hell is trying to put forward is that social scientists are right to have a research program looking at the ills of stereotypical conspiracy theory beliefs. And the issue is, and as, as Julie of Paul pointed out, Brian Keeley mentioned this back in 1999, there is no mark of the incredible that allows us to distinguish whether a conspiracy theory is stereotypical, aka false, or something which should be treated seriously without someone actually going and doing at least a preliminary investigation to see what features it has, what kind of arguments it relies upon, and what evidence has been elicited in support of it. So sure, if there was a way to detect stereotypical conspiracy theories just by a glance, that would be a perfect thing for social scientists to engage in the research of. But we can't do that, so we have to have a more nuanced view of both conspiracy theory and what a conspiracy belief is going to be. Yes, and I, I think that that also connects very well with the a posteriori particularism. I really should find a better name in my, uh, in my uh, research project, but... You know, when you know that there's a certain conspiracy theory that's stereotypical, if we have a definition of what this stereotype or, you know, the features of the stereotype should entail, which is already very difficult, um, then maybe, of course, we can, you know, say something about these past or already existing conspiracy theories. But that doesn't give us the tools to make predictions about future 
stereo, uh, uh, conspiracy theories, which may or may not turn out to be unwarranted, right? So it's um, as as Hill's argument is 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 right now. We can just only say something about past conspiracy theories that are or are already found to be wanting or not, but it doesn't give us tools to approach newer conspiracy theories or future conspiracy theories. Yeah, and the odd thing is, if you're going to do a generalism based upon past conspiracy theories, that generalism needs to accept that for that generalism to have been established about past conspiracy theories, people had to be particularists because as we can't spot bad conspiracy theories at a glance, we only know they're bad because someone actually went and said, here's why they're bad. And that that seems to me like one of the most pressing things we should research, especially in this age of where misinformation and disinformation are, you know, spread so much more easily or created more easily or uh, have a bigger outreach because of the internet and everything. Um, that it seems to me that finding out which conspiracy theory merits has evidential merits and which does not is an interesting and important topic to discuss. And we can't just say everything like this in the future will be unwarranted. That seems very, very odd to me. Yes, it does seem like epistemic hubris if we were to make that kind of assumption. That is the kind of assumption that would come back to haunt us at some point in the same respect kind of haunted the people who supported the idea that the US and the UK definitely weren't lying about the evidence for those weapons of mass destruction. Yes, yes, definitely. Just because it's a deviant explanation doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think um, that should be important for for our epistemic well-beings as social people. (laughs) But yeah, so it's just, yeah, I've, uh, this is my second year, so I have five more years to go. Is it a PhD by dissertation or PhD by published papers? I've actually never asked you this. I feel like I I should, I, I, I should, I should know this. It's a PhD by dissertation, but I've not really been as, interested yet in writing the chapters because every time I do start writing a chapter it turns out to be a paper and I don't know I think I'll just progress in this way writing papers and um, just finding one interesting question to answer or to look at and then hopefully everything will come together all all (laughs) you need to do is you just take the literature review bits at the beginning of each individual article cut and paste them into a chapter called introduction and then just rewrite the beginning of each paper so they feel like chapters rather than individual works and i'm sure it'll be fine Yes, yeah, hopefully so, yes. So, I mean, this is one of those projects that will keep going on for a while. I mean, I know around about 2019, I thought I was going to kind of end my association of doing work on conspiracy theories and move on to doing other projects. And then the COVID-19 pandemic occurred, and it turned out I had a lot more to say about conspiracy theories. And I think there's going to be a lot more to say for a while to come. Yes, definitely. And I think also because, you know, the lockdown has also revived a lot of older or, you know, conspiracy theories like 
big pharma vaccine anti-vax stuff like that and i think they these will not just go away also because they're in a way urban myths of of some kind right it's just the same um suspicions that will always be there that people will always have as as uh, work by a lot of uh, historians has also shown is that you know conspiracy theories we see today have have been have been present in history for almost all of the time just in different different forms yes actually i was thinking before when you were talking about how you know there seems to be this kind of background noise of conspiracy theorizing in politics over time there's a really interesting empirical question and i actually don't know how we would ever find out the answer to it as to what the natural level of conspiracy theorizing in human populations generally would be and it's hard to answer because we'd have to factor in different political economies will affect your tendency to see or not see conspiracy theories are going to be the way we view different marginalized or oppressed communities but there is a really interesting question as to whether there's a base rate that we could identify and then then that might give us an answer to the apparent problem of conspiracy theorizing if we could point towards things which exacerbate that and make it rise above a particular level or conversely if there are things that actually make it dip below that natural level which then mean we stop spotting actual conspiracies going on in our policies yeah and i think this is uh, maybe somewhat along the lines of what jan willem van poy has been saying for a while like social crises you know, make a conspiracy theory beliefs proliferate. So the people that I was talking about in the the start of the interview, people I knew who started believing conspiracy theories, they only started believing them when the lockdown hit. And the moment the lockdown was lifted, so were the conspiracy theories. Uh, They just disappeared. There was no more reason to really uphold these uh, beliefs. So... They weren't anymore. <laughs> yes, which actually did get on to another entire issue about whether some of the work going on in conspiracy theory at the moment is the product of a kind of a recency bias issue. But that, that's an entire, it's a whole other conversation we'll have to have at a, another time. We should probably bring this discussion to a close. It's been an absolutely enchanting discussion where I've, I've pretended to not know a lot of things about the work you're doing in order that the audience can find out about things. But where where to next? You've already said about some of the work you want to do towards the end of this year, although I suppose actually we are now at the end of this year. But what does year three bring to your project? Um, uh, hopefully uh, the empirically informed conspiracy theory research will be something I can really start off with so one thing i'm i've always wanted to do was my planning for the phd project is not as as um, rigid as it probably should be but uh here it goes anyway um it's something like the the really close reading of argumentation for specific conspiracy theories so what kind of arguments are being appealed to why are they found um uh, to be convincing how does expert testimony appeal uh, work for conspiracy theory arguments stuff uh, yeah stuff like that that would be awesome but 
that would also mean a lot of um, uh, educating myself on how to go about doing such empirically informed uh, research. Yes, and having done some work with Martin Orr and Jeff de Hosting doing survey work recently, it's a lot more complicated than simply asking questions. You start talking with social scientists and they'll go, you do realize that's a stupid question. You go, oh, in retrospect, yes, but I probably would have asked it anyway if you hadn't actually stepped in and pointed out what's wrong with it. So, yes, it'll be exciting to see what that project looks like. Yes. Well, thank you, Julia, for a great conversation. Hopefully we will talk again very soon. Yes, surely. Yes. Maybe Thursday. Yeah. But Maybe uh, Thursday indeed. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Em. I really enjoyed it. And um, give my regards to Josh. I will indeed. We'll talk soon. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denter. Our show's conspiracy producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, nothing is real. Everything is permitted, but conditions apply.